Please have your Bible open in Ezra chapter 2. I want you to see three key things this morning from this chapter. Worship, purity and generosity. Worship, purity, generosity. Are you ever tempted to assume that certain parts of the Bible are simply not worth reading? Be honest with yourself. That they're too much effort and at the end of all the effort they're of no value. That God has simply put them there for eccentric theologians and dusty historians. Well, perhaps Ezra chapter 2 would be such a passage And maybe, as we were reading through that text this morning, you were thinking, Ian, what on earth are you thinking of attempting to preach through this? Well, I understand completely why you might think that way. I hope that by the time we're done this morning, you will at least have started to think differently. And of course, if I'd skipped chapter 2, jumped straight to chapter 3, might I actually be reinforcing the view that there are passages in the Bible that just are not worth reading. Which is as good as giving you the green light to just rip out your Bible because you're never going to need it, you're never going to read it. Now you saw as we read through that there's a distinct order and pattern to this list of names. And the point is this, All of these verses are not there just to convey information. They're there because they have meaning. These are the remnant of Israel being brought out of exile in Babylon, returning to the ruins of Jerusalem in order to rebuild it, beginning, remember from last week, with the temple. Those whose spirits God has moved to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 5. Well, let's make our way through the text of this chapter. And let's discover what important truths actually do lie here. They're lurking just beneath the surface. It takes a bit more effort than John 3.16. But it's, it's here. The truth is here. The meaning is here. Let's see if we can find it. Well, first of all, let's begin with those leaders who we saw are mentioned in the opening two verses. Zerubbabel is named as the main leader. The others described as coming with him. He will feature quite prominently in the story of the return of these exiles. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Matthew chapter 1. Beginning at verse 11. It's another long list of names. But this is no ordinary list of names. This is the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. Josiah, he was one of the kings, remember? Begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. 
and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. He's a grandson of kings. But more than that, this man is in the line of succession to the king of kings. The line of succession through the Old Testament scriptures that will lead to Christ is being preserved right here at this moment in Israel's history. The family of the one who will be the lion of Judah is about to return to Judah. This is really important. This is really significant. Here are Christ's ancestors being put in place and ordered by the hand of God. Men in their own minds are making all kinds of plans, but as we've just heard, God is working out his purposes. There is a Messiah coming. Everything spoken of him in the Old Testament scriptures must be fulfilled to the very last detail. And here is a significant part in Israel's history where God intervenes in the most remarkable way and moves the heart of a pagan king in a most remarkable way so that everything that God is purposing regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to fall into place. And there it is, right in front of us. Isn't it amazing what God is doing here? If these events had never taken place, there would be no Jesus. Do you realise that? These verses should thrill your heart. Here is my God ensuring my salvation in Christ. Right here in these verses. And then there's Jeshua, which is another alternative way of spelling the name Joshua and in other places actually he's it's spelt Joshua and that's what he's called in verse 36 of this chapter we discover there that uh, Joshua is from a priestly family you see him mentioned amongst the the people there he's also mentioned in the opening verse of Haggai towards the end of the old testament And you discover there in Haggai and Zechariah who are speaking around this this same time. You discover there the Lord's people in the second year, this is Haggai, the opening verse, in the second year of King Darius, the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And then you read of Joshua, the high priest, in Zechariah chapter 3, and there is that glorious picture given. Joshua, the high priest, standing before God in filthy rags. And what does God say is to happen to Joshua? The filthy rags are to be lifted off him. And clean robes are to be placed around his shoulders. And here he is. This is that same Joshua. And these are the the leaders who God is putting in place in order to lead his people. Because 
God has far greater purposes in view that must be fulfilled. And here he is directing and leading his people. Zerubbabel has a really significant place in the family tree of Christ. And he's taken them back to Judah where everything will unfold regarding the coming of the Saviour in, half a cent, in uh, five centuries' time. And then we have the list of the people, starting at verse 3 through to 35. And we notice, don't we, what great care has gone into these verses. None are overlooked. All are included and accounted for. All are important. All have their place. There is no one in that group who are considered so insignificant that they don't need to be written about. They're all named and numbered. Large family groups placed together first, but even then they're not ranked by size or anything of that nature. The large and the small are all mingled together. These perhaps are families who lived in Jerusalem or whose family land has been lost many years earlier. Then others are listed in their place of origin. Now, for the people of Israel, when they first moved into the land of Canaan, this was a really important thing, because God had promised them this land, and as some of you will know, all the land was divided up up amongst the people. All the tribes had their own region, and all the people in that tribe had their own parcel of land where they would live. And some of these people now are, are listed, they're identifiable as being from a particular place, and they're all listed. And the various towns that are named, they're actually in a logical sequence that you'd be able to trace around with your finger on a map. And they're all there, and they're all included. No one's been omitted, no one is forgotten, no one is overlooked. Because that's how it is with God's people. There's some important principles being brought out here. Then we have the temple workers, verses 36 to 63, all the different things that they would do. And this section of the record is significant because it's the restoring of the temple that is to be the priority when they get back to Jerusalem, if you recall. And you see, the temple has to be much more than a building. The temple must be much more than just a building. It is to be a house of worship. It's to be a place of praise. And for the Old Testament people of God, that worship and that praise has been structured and prescribed by God himself. And all of these people will be required if that God-given worship is to resume. So the people don't just need all of their physical resources. They don't just need all the gold and the silver. They don't just need timber and bricks and everything else when they get to Jerusalem. Once the building's completed... Far more important than that is that the worship within it needs to be able to resume. And for that, you need certain types of people. And God has ensured that all the people who are necessary for worship are in this group who are returning to Jerusalem. Now, the priests, of course, are key to this. They will be the ones who perform all the necessary rituals and ceremonies within the temple. They'll be the one who receive the people's offerings and gifts. They'll be the ones who are performing the acts of sacrifice. So it's absolutely fundamental that they must be there. Otherwise, they have no worship. The Levites, they'll perform general duties within the, within the temple precinct. 
they'll have them as the musicians to lead songs of praise, which would have been the singing of psalms. They'll need the gatekeepers. What do they do? Well, they kind of help to maintain order and provide protection within the temple. They'll ensure that the different parts of the temple are not encroached upon by those who should not go there. There are sections of the temple where a Gentile may go, but go no further. Well, the gatekeepers will ensure that the Gentiles go no further. There are places within the temple when anyone who is a Jew may go, but they may not encroach further into the temple. There's a place where only the priests may go. Well, the gatekeepers will ensure that all of these God-given things are maintained in an orderly way. God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. The assembly of God's people is never to be a place of chaos, but of orderliness, because that is God. And God is holy and God is righteous. And holiness and righteousness must, must determine the worship of God and must reflect that. And this is pressed home in that group who are listed in verses 61 to 63. You have there, in those couple of verses, a group of people who are believed to be priests. But they've lost the records that will prove their family line. So they're believed to be priests, but they can't actually prove it. So for now, they have to be excluded from the priesthood. We'll come back to that in a moment. The matter can be decided later when they get back to Jerusalem by Urim and Thummim. By what? Good question, because we're not quite sure. Precisely what is meant by Urim and Thummim, no one is too certain of. There's insufficient description given in the Bible to be certain about these things. On one occasion, they're linked to the breastplate of the high priest. They're linked to what are called lights and perfections. What is clear is that whatever it was, it was a manner of discerning God's will. But exactly what was involved and how it worked, we simply don't know. But it was a manner of discerning the will of God in Old Testament days. Remember how the apostles decided to choose the new twelfth man to replace Judas Iscariot? They prayed and they drew lots. Confident and relying upon God that God would over, oversee the whole situation and that the right person would be chosen. Maybe the Urim and Thummim was something along those lines, but it was a way of determining the will of God. And they say, well, when we get to Jerusalem, we'll sort this matter out. But we don't know what it was. The thing, of course, is you don't need it anymore. Because you have in your hands something that they did not have in their hands. You have a completed Bible. But they did not. You have a completed Bible in which you have everything that you need. All that is necessary for you to know about God and his will and his purposes may be found here in God's word through the Holy Spirit and with prayer. It's all there. And you know, it's probably a good thing that we don't know 
any more about this with the Urim and the Thummim. Because you can be sure that there would be those who would rather meddle with that than dig into the word and find it here. So maybe it's a good thing that we don't know. But back to the priests. Here's the issue here, you see. Is their claim to priesthood enough? Is their claim to priesthood good enough? No. It's too important an issue to play fast and loose with. Because of the role that the priests play in the worship life of the nation of Israel. God's given very specific instructions about who may serve as priests. We need to be absolutely certain who these people are. Because it's too important to play around with. Now for us in the New Testament church today, what are some of the equivalent things that we see? Well, for example, in a similar manner, we see some very precise qualifications that are laid down for those who may serve as elders and deacons in a church. And there are some in the church today who want to question these roles. Why must they be restricted to certain ones? Why are they not open to all? Why can't they be? Why, why can't we blur the edges a little bit here and there? Well, it's because as in the days of the priests in the temple, those who would serve in these kinds of ways in the church today... These are not simply jobs up for grabs for anyone who fancies having a go. You can't approach these things in that way. They're far too important. They're far too serious. And that these things are already defined and prescribed for us by God in his word. They're determined by God. Their terms are not up for renegotiation. And so it was in Israel's day with these men who... Maybe these guys are priests, but until we can be sure, we cannot, we cannot dare to employ them. There's these temple servants, they're called the Nethanims, just a, an overall title that's used of them. They, was, they will carry out lesser and more menial tasks, but nevertheless, essential tasks in the daily functioning of the temple. Those little jobs that no one else would want to do. Those little jobs that no one ever notices. Those little things that... But you'd soon notice when they stop being done. There's a need for them. And they're there. It's believed that these were not actually of Jewish origin. But originally were Gibeonites who'd served in this role for centuries. Going back into the, the time of the kings... There are some servants who can trace their ancestry back to their forefathers who used to serve King Solomon. That's quite a long time ago. It was 500 years ago nearly. It shows what, este what esteem Solomon was still held in. Our family, we go all the way back to Solomon, you know. Uh, and they were drawn from various tribes of Canaan. Uh, Solomon made them to be his bond servants. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 9. So there are people in this group who actually aren't even Jews. But God's moved in their hearts. And they're part of his people who are returning home to Jerusalem. 
There are some in this group from verse 59. These are interesting. There are some in this group that they cannot prove anything about their identity. They can't prove their family lineage and they can't prove which town they came from, which are the two main things that people used back then. You met anyone in Old Testament days, the first thing they want to know is, who's your father? Where'd you come from? That was important. These people don't know. They'd have been embarrassed and ashamed to have to admit it. This is a big deal in their culture. I don't know. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm from. God's moved in their hearts. They're part of this people. They're returning. They're remembered. They are recorded. What a wonderful thought that is and what a great reminder it is of what the church needs to be. Where do you come from? What's your background? What skills and talents do you have? Or are you someone who worries that you don't have anything to give? What's your pedigree? None of that matters. Here's the question. Has God moved in your heart? That's what matters. Has God moved in your heart and brought you to Christ? That's the question. Has he brought you to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he? Then you're one of us. You're part of us. And your name is recorded. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm from. But there is a book in heaven that my name is written in. That's all that matters. And then in verses 64 to 67, we have the conclusion of all of these things. The whole assembly, 42,360 plus their male and female servants. The precise number of them is given. They've even counted every single horse, every single mule, every single camel, every single donkey. Nothing has been overlooked. This is who we are. Now, here's a striking thing in this chapter. They're going back to Jerusalem to rebuild it, beginning with the temple. Where are the stonemasons? Why aren't they mentioned? Where are the bricklayers? Why aren't they mentioned? Where are the carpenters and the metal workers? Why aren't they mentioned? Where are all the other tradespeople who are going to be so necessary when they get back to Jerusalem? Why aren't they mentioned? Well, they're all here. They're all amongst these tens of thousands of people. But there's a priority that they have that must never be overlooked and that they dare not forget. They will be rebuilding a building when they get to Jerusalem, but what that building will be like pales into insignificance compared to what that building will be for. What the building is going to be like doesn't really matter that much. What the building will be for, that's the issue. And that's what the focus is here. That's why this is the priority about the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the servants. Because that building has to function 
as God intended. The fact that it might look in a certain way is not the issue. Will it function as God wants it to function when the people return? That's the thing. The form of the building is not insignificant. It must have certain features in order that it can function as God required. But the form of the building is not to be their focus. The right and proper and true worship of God lies at the centre of it all. We must likewise be careful. Because we can find ourselves being far more concerned about the form of something while the actual worship of God gets sidelined. We need to remember that if ever we do begin planning for our own building sometime in the future. The form, well that comes way down here in our priorities. What will it be for? That will be key to everything. That's one reason why J.C. Ryle, when he was Bishop of Liverpool, always resisted the building of a huge cathedral. And if, he were able, if we were able to kind of bring him back right now and take him a couple of miles down the road, and if you were able to walk him around that huge edifice up on the top of the hill, and if you were able to let him hear some of the things coming from the lips of the current Bishop of Liverpool. J.C. Ryle would be weeping uncontrollably and if he were able to say anything, he would say, I told you so. Because the form of something is irrelevant. It's the true, pure worship of the people of God that is the issue at stake here. Always has been. Always will be. It's a big issue today in churches. Let's not skirt around the issue on the subject of worship in the churches. What form should worship worship take? What form should it take? And we start worrying about the form it should take more than we're worrying about whether or not we're actually worshipping God. Just the form of it takes over. Now the form of worship is important. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and see what Paul has to say about it there. It's not unimportant, but simply having a form of worship does not make it good worship. Does not make it better worship. And that holds true whether you're holding to the old or whether you're holding to the contemporary, actually. It's not about the form, is it? It's about the true worship of God from the heart, with all the soul. That's what's at stake here. And so in conclusion with this chapter, we can sum up with three thoughts in our minds. And the first is worship. It's completely clear that restoring worship is the number one goal of God and the number one goal of these people. In drawing up their register of who's returning, the list is dominated by the functioning of the temple in order that they might be a worshipping people. That lies at the heart of it all. And it's emphasised so strongly in chapter 2. 
What comes first in their priorities is a living relationship with the God who is sovereign. And secondly, purity. There is a key focus in the text of making sure that the people of God do things God's way. The way that he has instructed them. The way that he has prescribed. Because such things are not ours to decide or define. God is holy and he must be worshipped in holiness and purity. And that lies at the heart of all of these verses. And then thirdly, we see generosity. And now it's just time to mention the final couple of verses at the end of the chapter, beginning at verse 68. Because we discover there that some of the people, the heads of the father's houses, once they've arrived in Jerusalem, which will take them uh, quite a few months, as we'll see uh, later in the, in the book, they bring free will offerings to assist in all that needs to take place. And there's some old-fashioned measurements that are mentioned there in in verse 69. Now, someone's done some calculations as to what that might be in a modern uh, form that we would understand. And they came up with this figure. Half a tonne of gold. Half a tonne. And three tonnes of silver. Three tonnes. Offered as a free will offering. I don't know who carried the plate at the end. Breathtaking generosity. And, note this, as each gave according to their ability. According to their ability. Now, of course, if they were measuring it out accurately, and that half tonne of gold really was a half tonne of gold, it wouldn't have been half a tonne of gold until the widow had put her might on the scales, would it? It would have been one mite short of half a ton till she added her little, tiny, insignificant coin. Everyone gave according to their ability. God does not expect you to give what you do not have to give. But out of what you do have, he does expect you to give as you're able to give and from your heart as he moves you. If any church can get these three things sorted, what a church it will be. Worship. A worshipping heart. A worshipping church. Purity. Pure hearts. A pure church. Generosity. A generous heart. A generous church. A reflection of God in Christ himself. By God's grace, may this be seen and known in us.